Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Um, and once again, I say that this is one of my favorite psalms, but there's many like that. And it's hard to pick a favorite psalm if you know the psalms. But this is a really good one. Uh, psalm 16. A psalm of David. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is a portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in, in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and as we go through this word, this psalm, help us to understand these words, uh, what was in David's heart and what he was uh, speaking about concerning you. Lord, help us to receive these words, to apply them to our lives and guide us this evening. Guide me as I preach your word that you would speak through me to your people uh, for their good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. There is a principle concerning uh, uh, Christian living or sanctification, concerning spiritual growth and, and uh, growth in Christ's likeness, this principle of um, our affections that... Uh, uh, where, what you delight in or what you desire will ultimately guide you in your life, will, will uh, govern your life. Um, and, and this is, uh, is in a sense, uh, proclaimed or, or um, spelled out by many passages in, in Scripture. Uh, this psalm uh, particularly uh, uh, alludes to that and, and, and uh, exposes that or, or um, proclaims that principle, rather. Um, Jesus himself said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so um, sometimes we think of, and especially as new believers, we uh, are often, most of us, um, we've been blessed with uh, uh, growing up or getting saved and going to a church where there was some sort of discipleship program. And in, uh, if it was a good discipleship program, it, it taught us spiritual disciplines. And uh, it's good to have uh, spiritual disciplines. Uh, we need them. We need discipline. We need self-control. We, we need uh, these things in our life to guide us. Um, but sometimes we can uh, uh, remain there that, that uh, the Christian life is just about discipline and duty. And uh, we don't fully grasp this concept um, that really fuels our growth, that that what we delight in, what we desire, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And David um, points this out to us as he shows us that his heart is fixed on God, that he delights in God, that he looks to God, he places his hope completely in God, and not just his hope, but his sense of joy and pleasure that that's where ultimate pleasure is, ultimate joy is. Um, there's also this sense that uh, 
the sense of um, growth and 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 uh, sanctification and holiness and and uh, worship is that um, where you go in times of trouble or the place you seek for refuge is is what you trust in and what you hope in. That's where your true hope lies. Um, whether that's to uh, you know um, some physical place where you find security and comfort um, as uh, many of us growing up as children uh, it might have been uh, a you know grandparents house or something where we felt safe and secure and as we grew older and, and maybe we always went to grandma or grandpa or maybe it was um, a parent that would always be the person we could go to in times of trouble that would uh, give us um, some money or, or whatever we needed or help. Um, but where we go in times of trouble is what we trust in, what we hope, hope in. It's, and it's ultimately um, what we, uh, partly what we treasure, what we value. Um, and so there, there's these two aspects that, that, in a sense, David is drawing out um, here in this psalm. Both what he trusts in, what he hopes in, where he um, finds refuge and safety in, in God, but also what he delights in and what he desires. And as we go through this psalm, we will see the object and the affections of David's heart as he um, speaks about God and Yahweh as his, his uh, refuge, his hope, his delight. It is what he values, what he delights in, what he worships. And he will show us this in really five proclamations or five expressions uh, which indicate the condition of his heart and what his mind is focused on. As always, as many of his psalms, uh, he uh, begins usually with a request or a plea. Uh, we, we see oftentimes David is in times of trouble. And he uh, goes to God as we should go to God first. Sometimes when we're in times of trouble, we try to work it out first ourselves, and then we go to God. But uh, it seems as if David always goes to God first, and then he reaffirms his heart and his mind of who God is, and he uh, brings his request before God. And, and towards the end, there, there is a sense of... Uh, sense of peace or delight, and we see this in this psalm. And so we'll see it in terms of five expressions or five proclamations which expose his heart. First, David's request. We see David's request in verses 1 and 2. And as many uh, commentators have said, there's really, uh, they commented that there's just one prayer and then the rest is testimony. But I, I would almost take the whole thing as prayer, as, as much of the psalms, as many psalms are both prayer and praise and, and maybe even a sense of proclamation of who God is, but I think it's all prayer. But we see first his request, David's request, keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. And so we, we see, in a sense, two parts of his request. His request first for refuge and then for rest. And, and not just these two aspects of his request to God, but it's almost as if he speaks to God and then he speaks to himself to reaffirm himself of uh, God as his refuge. And so he calls upon God for, uh, for preservation. Keep me. Protect me, and protect me because I, I trust in you, because I go to you for refuge. So uh, almost as if he's praying uh, not just for uh, protection um, now, that as if he's in danger, but almost as if he is being protected by God, and he prays that that protection, that preservation would continue. Because he trusts in him and he is trusting in him. And then, it's all, and then he turns back on himself and he reaffirms himself. Oh, my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And so it's as if he's uh, praying for refuge, but then he's praying for rest as well. That, that he's, he's 
speaking back to himself for this this uh, rest in in two categories, really, uh, this internal rest as he's speaking to his soul. And you can, in a sense, uh, picture uh, uh, someone who is worried or anxious or fearful um, that he is trying to rest his heart and his mind and his soul that that he um, trusts in the Lord. Oh, my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. And so if that's the case, if, if God has shown good to, to David and has um, delivered him, then he can rest in him. And he can find rest in him for his uh, internal turmoil, but also for uh, eternity, spiritual rest. I like what... Um, Will Varner writes in his devotional commentary, Awake, O Harp, concerning uh, this verse, or actually more the, the, the end of verse 2. And this phrase that he says, I have no good without you. Uh, or, and uh, Will Varner says this, he says, you have, you have taken a giant step toward true Christian maturity when you can say to the Lord and also mean it, I have no good apart from you. You think about that. He, he, he understands his own sinfulness. And, and he understands maybe not just his own sinfulness, but perhaps also his own foolishness. That apart from God, he would be a, a complete mess. He would make a mess of his life. Um, he would also, in a sense... Uh, uh, incur God's wrath because of the evil and the sin that's within him. And so if God does, doesn't impart good or righteousness to him, then there is no good within him at all. I have no good without you. Without you uh, keeping me, protecting me, preserving me, delivering me, without you in my life, there's, there's nothing good within me. And so because of that, I, I, I testify that you are the good within me and I can trust in you and I rest in you and I, I can find refuge in you. And so we see that request. But then we see um, also his, his testimonies as he uh, goes on from this request and, and moves into uh, a sense of proclamation and, and reaffirmation of his relationship with God and who God is and what God has done in his life. And so we see this second expression which indicates uh, the condition of his heart in David's relationships, his relationships. Uh, uh, he, he goes to God and then to himself and then outward to others. He says in verse 3, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And then he talks about those that are not saints. He, he shows us his relationships with the, the people around him, his relationships with the saints, and then his relationships with the ain'ts, the saints and the ain'ts, those who are in Christ or in God and those who are outside of God. Uh, he talks about those Saints, those, as we know, uh, those, the, the sense of uh, saint meaning uh, sanctified or set apart, the holy ones. They're, they are set apart from the rest in the earth. They are the majestic ones. They are uh, majestic and delightful. And, and you think of this, uh, you know, um, yes, it, it is true that within any church, and uh, you, you see this maybe more often in, in bigger churches, just because there's more people, that there's uh, people of various levels of maturity and growth. Um, sometimes that may be due, a little bit due to age and background, but um, nonetheless, there, there is a, a differing amount of spiritual maturity and growth. But you also know that there are many believers who, and sometimes it's someone you, you meet right away, and there's a sense of, of spiritual camaraderie, of unity, of delight in this person. Um, you think, man, this is a godly person. And, and sometimes you don't, you know, you don't really 
know everything about them, but there, there's just that, that initial moment in, in which you, you uh, meet them and introduce yourself, and, and there's something of a delight in this person because you see God at work in them and, and, and their personality and their character. And then as you get to know them more, it, 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 more often than not, it, it becomes to be that's what's true about them. I, I remember um, several people, and I'm sure you as well, can think of these people in your minds. And, and um, I remember meeting one uh, a missionary in particular and just like, man, this, this guy was just a godly guy. He's just a godly single guy serving the Lord, and, and, and you just... It's almost as if the guy was glowing. <laughs> it was like, man, um, it's just this is what David is talking about. These these majestic saints in whom is all my delight. But it's not just the the. I don't think it's just the super saints that he's speaking with. We can easily see that. But even even Paul would speak of the Corinthians as saints. That he would. There's a sense that um, there's also those. Saints that are kind of like, you know, a little messy, but you still love them. And, you know, and there's a sense that you still delight in them. And it's like, uh, you know, some of you um, may have been uh, around, uh, you know, around kids and either children's Sunday school or your own children. And you see that little, you know, scruffy one or that, um, you know, messy one and, and they're always fumbling and, and messing things up, but there's something about them. You just love the kid. And sometimes saints are like that. But nonetheless, uh, David, he delights in them. He delights in them, and, and he uh, loves them, and he wants to be around them. And, and mainly, he delights in them because God delights in them as well. But then there's this, this separation. There's this relationship with the saints and his outlook towards them, but then there's this relationship with the ain'ts, those that are outside of God, the, the, that they are idolaters. They, um, they, they don't worship God like the saints or like him. As he says in verse 4, the pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips." And it's interesting, the, these, these words um, and uh, the pains of those who have bartered for another god, or your translation might say have ran after another god or have, uh, have uh, chased after another god, will be multiplied. They're, they're idolaters. They don't worship the one true God. They have, as Paul says in Romans 1, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they've worshipped idols rather than the one true God. And so because of that, their pains will um, be multiplied. And they may even, their, their life may even be characterized by pain and turmoil and frustration. Or they, they may, as uh, even uh, Asaph says in, in Psalm 73, that they, they may seem to prosper, but really the pain is to come. But nonetheless, because they don't worship the one true God, uh, they, are, they are not to be followed or revered. They're, they're outside of the kingdom. They, uh, they have ran towards something that is not God, and because of that, their pain will be multiplied. And there's this, right here we see this, um, this principle here. That when someone turns away from God, when someone uh, rejects God, they don't just turn from God, but they turn to another object of worship. They turn to something else. They turn to an idol. And that idol will not deliver them. It will not um, provide for them. It will not uh, uh, give them what they, they seek. It will not deliver on promises because there is no promise. It doesn't speak. It, doesn't, it has uh, ears but does not hear. It has a mouth but does not speak, uh, as the prophets say. And so there's a sense, and, and Jeremiah draws this out as God speaks through Jeremiah in, in the beginning of Jeremiah as he is calling Jeremiah, and he's 
in a sense, almost explaining uh, the condition of Israel at that time. And we read this in Jeremiah 2, in a sense, as, as God is speaking uh, to and through Jeremiah. And he says this, Has a nation changed gods, though they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very devastated, declares Yahweh. For my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And the appalling thing here in this passage is that that it's speaking of Israel, who um, was to worship the one true God, who had the law, had the prophets. Um, they were supposed to be God's people, and many of them had still proclaimed that they were God's people while they're chasing after idols. But nonetheless, we, we get this principle that you don't just turn from God. You turn from God to another uh, object of worship, something else that you think will deliver you, will, will give you pleasure or joy or hope or trust or comfort or security or whatever it's, it, it may be. And, and in the end, all it gives you is pain. It brings pain and that pain will be multiplied unless you turn and repent and, and turn towards the one true God and worship him. And so there's this stark contrast between the saints and the ain'ts as, as David um, unfolds his outlook and his relationships with the people around him and his view of those who have rejected God for the sake of idols, that they are not to be associated with, they're not to be partnered with, they're not to be revered. He says, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, um, almost saying, uh, saying something, the obvious, he, he's not going to join them in worship of their, their idols, nor will I take their names upon my lips, uh, the names of their false gods. He, he's not going to join in their worship. And, and that, that may be something that's easy to say, and especially in David's context, as the idolatry was explicit, that they, they explicitly worshipped a statue. But in our day and age, as most of the idols in our day and age are, are more of uh, at the heart level. Um, they, they may be a physical object. They, they may, may be something like money or a house. Um, but it may be something at the heart level that's an experience. Um, could be something immoral. That's some sort of experience or a vacation or um, something that's going to uh, give us a good experience in life or relieve pain or sorrow. And then there's people, you know, especially if you're still in the workplace, um, there's people all around you that, that may not be believers and they talk about things um, in their life, um, things which they treasure, which they live for, and that's really their idol and they chase after. And there's a sense that some, sometimes we can be drawn into that as well and almost uh, affirm their own idolatry. And it can be very subtle. But David says, says I, I won't take part in that. I won't even take the names of, of those idols or their, those false gods upon my lips. I, I don't even want to be a part of it. And we get here what, um, what uh, Moses would proclaim to the Israelites in the law of this, this concept of separation, uh, to be separate from everything that is unholy, that is ungodly, that does not honor God. Uh, this sense of honoring God is to uh, to seek him to, and to reject those things that, that dishonor him or bring shame upon his name or the things that he hates or are sinful. And even uh, uh, Paul would, would talk about this in, in, uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6 as he is also uh, uh, commenting or, or quoting uh, from the law. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? David says, I I, I won't take part in their idolatry. I won't be around it. I, I, I won't, you know, because I see the end of it. My delight is in God and my delight is in God's people. That's where I want to be. These are my relationships. This is where my, my heart is. My heart is with God and my heart is with people, with his people. Which brings us to uh, the second expression, or the third expression, rather, of David's heart is, is his ration. We've seen his requests, we've seen his relationships. Now we see, thirdly, his ration or his portion or his lot. Verses 5 and 6, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. This is almost where this is the treasure of his heart. This is where what he delights in. This is where his hope is in. It's in Yahweh. He is his ration or his portion or his lot, uh, the, the thing that he is looking to for hope, for sustenance, for provision, for life. And his ration is, uh, in, in a sense, two parts, uh, uh, God's person and then God's glory, that, that God himself is my inheritance. And, and there's this, this uh, aspect of um, he, uh, that, uh, the ancient world that he's speaking to. Um, a, a big thing in the ancient world was um, your inheritance from your family as an agrarian society, and especially for Israelites, um, their tribal inheritance of the land that was allotted to them that would be passed down, down from father to son, and that was to stay within the family. And there was also a sense of provision in the law that if, if the family, for whatever reason, um, was forced to, because of famine or poverty, was forced to sell off part of the law, there was, or, or I mean part of the land, rather, they, they could um, uh, come back and, and redeem it. Because that was their inheritance. That was their portion. That was their lot. But David says, no, my, my inheritance is God himself, God's person. He is my portion, my inheritance, my lot. Not riches, land, or flocks, which all can be stolen or squandered or lost or die. No, my inheritance, my portion, my lot, my ration in life is God himself. I like what Charles Ryrie writes about this verse in his uh, study Bible, he says this. He says, David describes the beauty of his spiritual inheritance in terms similar to the divine allotment of the promised land to Israel. He says these lines are measuring cords by which the various allotments were measured, the allotments of the land. And so he's saying, uh, using this picture that the Israelites would understand concerning the inheritance of the land and their lot and their portion, what was really important to them, very important. But David says, no, Yahweh himself, God himself is my portion, my inheritance, my lot, and, and, and these lines, the, 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 measure, the measurement of my inheritance have fallen to me in pleasant places. Almost as if you, you think of, um, of a surveyor as he surveys out the land. And we, we can read some of this in the Old Testament narrative um, uh, of um, having land or a piece of land with a, a spring or a well, that, that that allotment, that was a good allotment, the measuring line, it fell to me in a good place because I have springs, I have a well, I have um, good pasture land. And uh, David is almost saying, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places because it's God himself. It's God's glory. My inheritance is beautiful to me. It, it, there, there's no greater inheritance, there's no greater portion, there's no gray, greater lot than to have God himself as my portion and my lot, my 
ration. Next, we see uh, uh, the fourth uh, expression of David's heart uh, the, that he says concerning uh, uh, where his treasure lies, and that's his refuge. We've seen his request, his relationships, his ration, and now his refuge in verses 7 to 9. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. This is his refuge. What he, in a sense, uh, affirms in the beginning of this psalm that, that his refuge is in Yahweh, and not just in Yahweh, but in certain aspects of Yahweh, of certain aspects of God, first in the wisdom of God. As we read in verse 7, that, that is, it's God who counseled me. He has instructed me. I, I, I take refuge in the wisdom of God, in God's counsel, not even as a uh, Psalm 1 would say, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. All of David's counsel, his, his refuge, is in the wisdom of God. But there's also a sense that he, this uh, instruction comes to him through prayer and submission to his will. He says, uh, indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. It's almost uh, uh, referred to or allude to uh, those times in the night, and, and we've, most of us have been there, where there's something on your mind and you can't sleep. And so what do you do, or, or what should you do, is you should bring it to the Lord, and you should pray. And, uh, and if you're... Uh, if you're really distressed, you're really anxious, you're really worried, that's exactly what you do. You can't sleep. And so he prays. He goes to God. Uh, one commentator writes that sleepless nights provide opportunity for instruction. And so he goes to God, and he shows that, in a sense, that, that God instructs him or counsels him that as he goes to God and he talks with God in the middle of the night, his mind uh, uh, you know, lays out his, his uh, worries, his cares, his anxiety before God, and then that's where he gets those, uh, the instruction, the counsel. You, you, you think about that, that there is a sense, in, and I want to be careful here not to uh, allude to uh, uh, prophecy or um, uh, extra uh, revelation, but there, there is a sense where and during those times, during those long times of prayer, we don't know what to do and we're fearful and we're worried and we're anxious and, and we can't sleep and we lay out our heart. If we do what we should do and we lay out our heart before God and in the midst of prayer, what should happen as we are uh, aligning our will with God, so to speak, what should happen is that by the power of the Spirit should bring to our minds uh, Scripture or things God has taught us in the past so that by the end of that time of extended prayer, we should experience a peace that surpasses all understanding and we should get some sense of counsel. Okay, I know exactly what I need to do. I need to remember what I have learned in the past. I need to remember this, this scripture or this verse or this passage that, or, or, or maybe it was even a, a book or a sermon that you heard and, and God brings it to your mind and, okay, this is what I need to do. And so this is, in a sense, what David is speaking about, this refuge in the wisdom of God through prayer and submission to his will. But he also finds refuge in the presence of God. Verse 8, I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And, and this is strange. Uh, there's this concept that uh, many of the, the English Puritans would speak about. 
um, which David is alluding to here, uh, this concept of practicing the presence of God. And, and when you hear that, you should think about that, as, and, or maybe you think about it as, as I think about, how do you practice the presence of God? Like, like come here, God, I want to practice your presence. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But what it means is, in a sense, that you are um, reminding yourself that God is omnipresent, that you are living in such a way that God is right there with you, that this is what David is speaking about. He's not actually setting Yahweh before him. He's not actually setting God before him, but it's almost as if he's reminding himself that God is before him. God is with him. God is all around. There's nowhere he can go where God is not. And so he's almost, uh, as he says, he's practicing the presence of God. He's reminding himself that, that God is there. He's always there. And because he's always there and he will never leave him nor forsake him, he will not be shaken. And so he finds refuge in the presence of God. As he would even say in Psalm 139, there's, there's nowhere he can go where God is not there. And so he finds refuge in the presence of God. And, but thirdly, he finds his refuge in the power of God. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Because he keeps him. And because God keeps him, he is glad. He can rejoice. He can rest. He can uh, trust. And, and he has security. He, he will never leave him nor forsake him. He finds his refuge in God and in God alone. Brings us to our final aspect or final expression of, of David's heart. And he comes and we've seen his request, his relationships, his ration, his refuge. And now we see David's redemption. Verse 10. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. We see here in these two verses... David's redemption, his redemption at the hand of God, that um, we see two aspects of that redemption, uh, he, what he is redeemed from and then what he is redeemed to. What he is redeemed from in verse 10, that he is redeemed from Sheol, he's redeemed from corruption, and then what he's redeemed to in verse 11, the, this path of life, the, God's presence, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And as we read here in verse 10, we see this term we often see in the Old Testament uh, uh, concerning uh, death, or um, some may... Uh, say it refers to the afterlife, um, Sheol, in a sense meaning the grave or death in the grave. Um, the, as one preacher has said, often other preachers have said as well, that um, if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't know much about hell. And there's a sense that, that Jesus, most of our knowledge and understanding of hell comes from Jesus. And it has to, in a sense, because he, he created it and he, in a sense, uh, rules over it, as we see in Revelation 14. But the Old Testament saints, there, there, there's, there's only a couple passages. In fact, there's only really one that, that really uh, shows us somewhat of a picture of hell. They, they knew there was judgment. They knew that God would judge sinners. And they, they knew that there was a sense of a fear of death and, and corruption and, and the grave. But it's really um, here in, uh, I think it's only this one verse in Isaiah where we see this sense of, uh, of destruction at the end of Isaiah. In the very last verse. Of Isaiah, we read, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, 
and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an object of contempt to all mankind. And since uh, Jesus himself would um, speak about that and would uh, further elaborate on that. But the Old Testament doesn't speak a lot to hell. It talks about Sheol, it talks about death and the grave. And there is a sense that there is uh, uh, judgment. But David says, you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You, you, you'll not leave me. You'll not uh, leave me to corruption, to decay, to uh, whatever comes later. Destruction. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. And, and so here we, in a sense, get what also um, another aspect of this psalm. As we read through this. And we see that David isn't just speaking about himself, but he's, uh, as, we, as I kind of alluded to earlier this morning, that he's also speaking of the, the uh, greater David, or he's speaking of Jesus. He's speaking of the one to come. This is term holy one, a term that would be used of, of the Messiah throughout different parts of the Old Testament. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Could also be uh, used, uh, you know, concerning a, a, a godly one. But he shows us what, what he is redeemed from and then what he is redeemed to. That, that he is redeemed to uh, eternal life. To... Uh, Life in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy. I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to Acts 2. And there's a sense that this, these two verses in Psalm 16 is used by both uh, Peter and Paul in their, uh, in their um, evangelism in their proclamation of the gospel, as they speak to the Israelites concerning Jesus and concerning his resurrection. And this is really what David is getting at here. Not just what he's redeemed from, the grave and corruption, but what he is redeemed to, eternal life. And Peter, in the day of Pentecost, he says this, to the Israelites. He says this, Men of Israel, in Acts 2.22, listen to these words. Jesus a Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades." nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Quoting Psalm 16. Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on the, his throne, he looked ahead... And spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And as oftentimes uh, David does in his Psalms, he speaks uh, prophetically concerning Christ, concerning the Messiah. And also shows us, points us to uh, the resurrection. 
that in God we're not just redeemed, we're not just saved from death and decay and hell, but we're saved to eternal life, to hope, to uh, fullness of joy, to pleasures forevermore. And this is what, what David is redeemed to, but he's also speaking of Christ, that there is uh, uh, one that would go ahead of us as the first fruits, as the firstborn from the dead, so to speak, the first one to be raised to eternal life, to true life, to life with God. And just as, uh, you know, um, there's the Old Testament doesn't speak much about uh, uh, the eternal death or eternal corruption or hell. It is uh, similar about uh, eternal uh, life and the resurrection. But there is one passage. There's a couple passages, but there's one that um, in Daniel, towards the end of Daniel, that alludes to this sense of resurrection and not just resurrection but this sense of glory as Daniel speaks in Daniel 12 and verse 2 many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt and those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever a sense of, of glory, of, of being made new, of whole, of uh, uh, fullness and pleasures forever in God's sight. That, that David is redeemed and, and speaking of, of Christ and, and the, him uh, going uh, first and, and as a firstborn, that, that there's a sense of glorification, of eternal life. And then joy in God's presence. As we even, uh, you know, we, we often think of, of heaven in this mystical sense. And there is a sense that there is a lot of mystery. As uh, even Paul would say to the Corinthians, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, what God has uh, uh, prepared for those who love him. And even Jesus would say, in my Father's house are many mansions. And I go to prepare a place. But he also says in one parable, as he's talking about the parable of the talents and the two faithful ones before the unfaithful, and he says to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And it wasn't just the... the sense of doing good and being faithful that uh, drove them, so to speak. But we get this also this sense of reward, of joy, the joy of your master. And I don't think we think enough about heaven and eternal life in those terms of pleasure and joy. And, and I really appreciate the ministry of John Piper and the fact that he has drawn this out for us in primarily in his book Desiring God but other books that he speaks a lot about this uh, uh, for, of, um, of uh, God his tagline God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him that, that all our our, our joy should be in him. We, we should rejoice in him, that, that he should be our source of pleasure. And in uh, seeing him as our treasure and source of pleasure and joy, then everything else will, in a sense, seem to fade away. This is also what um, one uh, uh, Scottish, uh, a Scottish Puritan, he uh, wrote a sermon about, and it's in a, a small booklet. Um, uh, he, he called it the expulsive power of a new affection in, in terms of how we, we uh, fight sin and how we uh, 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 strive for holiness. That we, we start at the heart level. Or even as, as Piper would say, no one sins out of duty. And too often we uh, go about our, our Christian lives in a sense of 
just mere discipline and duty rather than uh, from the sense of treasure and pleasure and joy. And, and if we uh, live our lives as, uh, with this sense of joy and pleasure in God, then all the pleasures and uh, lesser joys of this world will fade away. And that's, I think, the main lesson of this psalm and what David's pointing to. There's so many things here, but that his refuge is not only in God, but that in God and God alone is his joy and his pleasure, and that he makes known to him the path of life, that he is uh, where David wants to be, and he doesn't want to be around anyone else that, that uh, shames God or does not worship God. That his delight is completely in God and in God alone because he and he alone will give him eternal life and show him the path of life. And in him and him alone is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so this is the lesson for us tonight in this psalm and uh, the lesson for our lives that um, we are to uh, strive after God, to seek God, and to rejoice in God and God alone and not in the things of this world which the um, pagans and all, uh, all run after, things which do not profit, which do not deliver. Only God will deliver, and in God and God alone should be our glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for other passages like this that uh, show us the emptiness of uh, the things of this world and reveal to us and remind us of um, our treasure and our hope in you, that only you can redeem, only you can uh, save, only you can sanctify, and only you can uh, give us what we truly need, eternal life, eternal hope, and eternal joy. And so, Lord, help us to live in light of these truths and to seek you and to uh, live for you as our greatest treasure. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.